Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to regular panelists and established scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum gentlemen, welcome to Faith Matters. Just in terms of a brief introduction, for those as yet unfamiliar with our two established uh, panelists on Faith Matters, of course to my immediate right is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence for the Amdiya Muslim community here in the UK. And to his right, of course, is Molana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Sahib, who's an established uh, missionary, a well-known missionary across the world, not just here in the UK, but also head of the Global French Desk for the Amdiya Muslim community. Gentlemen, welcome to uh, Faith Matters today. And we're going to start really on home territory from South London, from Amna Ali. Assalamu alaikum, Amna, and thank you for your question. She's She's been having various discussions with friends, other Muslim friends of hers, who don't belong to the uh, Amdiya community. And referencing Surah Al-Baqarah, verse from the Holy Quran, she's asking, does it say that Allah told the angels to submit to Adam and all did except Iblis? And then, of course, there's this, sometimes people talk about Iblis being a fallen angel. Iblis also seems, writes Amna, to be referred to as an angel, so it gets quite confusing. Jangir uh, Saab, if I could start with you, what is, who is Iblis, what is the status of Iblis? Because there is, as Amna rightly says, sometimes a lot of confusion as to was Iblis an angel, not an angel, a fallen angel, or what was his, or what was Iblis, I use the word his, but um, what was Iblis? Well, you see, first of all, you have to see who Adam was. We have spoken about this previously. The Adam mentioned in the Quran is usually uh, by him is meant the first prophet who is n nearest to us. Mm. But it could also mean even an Adam prior to that. We are now going through a period of 7,000 years. There were cycles in religion, just as there are cycles in nature. And we're in the last millennium of the, the cycle of 7,000 years. Adam came at the beginning of that. So. Um, in principle, it, it applies to him, but it could also apply to any other Adam prior to him because the nature of the discussion is this, will always be the same. And it is that here the angels and Iblis, or the devil, are metaphors for something. They can mean, for example, um, good people and rebellious people, evil people. So that whenever Allah sends a representative on earth, in this case Adam, and Adam you know, gives out his message and says that I've been sent to you by God for your own good, for your guidance. So submit to me for the sake of God. Those people with an angelic disposition will accept him and will bow down to God for him. Mm -hmm. So they don't bow down to Adam as if they're worshipping Adam. 
but they bow down according to his orders and commandments which are coming from God. <coughs> they bow to God, of course. But then there will always be the one called Iblis who will be that evil-natured person who will refuse to submit to divine authority mm. and who will do it out of jealousy, out of arrogance, because he wants to be the leader of people. And most likely, prior to the coming of Adam, he would have been a leader anyway. And he doesn't want to lose that position. He doesn't recognize that his real greatness lies in his submission to God and his submitting to the one sent by God. He would have got even more grandeur and more you know, uh, nobility had he done so. But he doesn't recognize that because he's, he's short-sighted. And his sight is, is set on the world. He doesn't see beyond that. So he becomes the opponent of Adam, and he now tries to lead the people who follow Adam astray. And the whole story of this in the Quran is about that. And Allah says, don't let, O children of Adam, don't let Satan uh, do to you what he did, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, what he did to your, to your ancestors, Adam and Eve, and the people who followed them. Because history keeps on repeating itself. Every time, every single time a prophet, a messenger of God is sent, people behave towards him in these two ways. Either they accept him and they are of the angelic group, or they follow the Iblis of the time, the devil of the time, and they, and they become lost. So they become the opponents of the Prophet. And the Promised Messiah, who founded the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is no, he's no exception. He too has had a large following, but an even larger opposing camp. And day by day, the opposing camp is being reduced as the people join his flock little by little. But they continue in their persecution, they continue in their you know, disobedience to, to God's commandment. One commandment which, is, which resonates particularly uh, loudly today is when he told them that I have been sent to you by God and my commandment to you, O Muslims, because he addressed also Muslims, not only other peoples, but specifically Muslims first of all, is to let go of your bloody jihad. So the jihad of the sword. He said that you must not do that uh, again today because this is not the requirement of the time. And if you do not listen to this, you will be disobeying the Prophet Muhammad So this is my commandment to you today. And you see that uh, today the, the question now is, has come into, into the open. All this question about jihad. Mm. So you have the, the Ahmadi interpretation of jihad, which is the, the sane one, the only sane one today, mm. which is that you have the right to defend yourselves if you are being, you, you are being forced to not follow your religion. Mm -hmm. But since this is not the case today, nobody is trying to destroy Islam by the sword. Therefore, you do not have the right to take up the sword to fight the people who are not attacking Islam in this way. On the other hand, they are attacking Islam by the pen. Mm. So you must reply and respond in kind mm. with the pen. So you have this on the one hand, and you have the other interpretation of the, the group which is following the Iblis characteristics, unfortunately, which is to not listen to the Imam sent by God, to not listen to the Prophet and Messenger sent by God and his commandments, and they are going for the opposite of that, mm. with the dire consequences which we can now see on our television sets every single day, unfortunately. <coughs> so. This is a very important question, and this is why it's in the Qur'an, from the very beginning, the very beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, because Allah knew that this was going to be repeated again and again and again. So Muslims really should pay attention to these verses, 
reflect deeply upon their meanings and then apply those meanings to their lives. Otherwise, they're just their stories and they'll have no meaning at all. They have to realize Allah has put them there for this very purpose. Jazakumullah for that very detailed answer and my thanks also to Amna uh, Ali for her question. We'll move on to our next question which comes from Saad Bhatt Sahib. <coughs> Dr. Saab, he's um, relating to, many will visualize it, everyone who turns on the screen when they're looking at uh, the Hajj, the formal pilgrimage, see the famous black stone in Makkah in that, towards which every Muslim turns their head and prays. A um, few sort of questions from Saad who asks, how did it, where did it first arise from? And linked to that, it's significant is Islam. Um, and perhaps there are those who raise an allegation that this is somehow linked to paganism. So if we could go back to the origins of, of how it came about that this, you know, uh, stone as many would see it, but is revered within the Islamic faith and is turned to in terms of its direction um, is so central to the Muslim faith and to Islam? Well, the Kaaba is uh, what we should concentrate on and look at the history of the Kaaba itself. According to the Holy Quran, Allah says that this was the first house that was built on earth for the worship of God. Mm -hmm. So this was the ancient house, Baitulatik, it is the sacred house, the house that was built originally for the worship of Allah and that is what the foundation of so that. this predates Islam this predates Islam and it, it is said to be from the time of what we've been talking just now of Hazrat Adam mm -hmm. the first prophet of this, this um, 7,000 year cycle that we are passing through just to digress for a mm -hmm. moment and it's uh, always my prerogative to take conversation that way um, but there is relevance here because I think sometimes people both Muslims and not Muslims misunderstand that that there are things often which predate Islam and Islam was a completion of faith it wasn't sort of it didn't sort of destroy everything that went on before it and it's often lost that mm. terminology certain places in terms of their historical and religious significance are sort of just perceived through an, a prism of Islam alone yet actually it's building upon foundations that were laid before absolutely the uh, the, the unity of God was established by Adam uh, may peace be upon him who was the first prophet mm -hmm. that was sent to mankind. So man existed before the prophet Adam came, came on this earth. We don't believe that the prophet Adam was the first human being that was created by Allah because that does not fulfill the requirements that a prophet is sent to people to reform them. So Adam was sent to reform people and he was a monotheistic uh, religion that he brought to the earth. And the Kaaba, which is the cuboidal shaped building that we see in Mecca, is where the foundations of the Kaaba were laid by Adam. And it is said that the black stone, the Hajre Aswad, was a stone, perhaps a meteorite or a pseudo-meteorite, which had been sent by God Almighty, mm -hmm. which was used in the construction of this cuboidal building. So even that stone, the black stone, dates back to that time of uh, Adam and to the structure that was constructed at that time for the worship of Allah. So this is something that we have to understand. The house was built for the worship of the, of the one God. After that, during the course of history, we know that it fell into ruins and had to be rebuilt by the Prophet Abraham and his son, Hazrat Ismail salam. They rebuilt the Kaaba and they repositioned the stone that was present as the Hajre Aswad, the meteorite, into the Kaaba once again. 
So we have the history that is now following the Hajri Aswad to the time of the Prophet Abraham. And as we know that uh, uh, he was also a, a, a prophet who had been sent for the reformation of mankind at that time, and as was Hazrat Ismail salam, he was a prophet of God as well. Moving forward to the history of the holy to the time of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, we are we are told that uh, the Kaaba the was being rebuilt after it had uh, undertaken some damage, and the black stone was to be positioned in one of the walls of the Kaaba, mm -hmm. and the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the year 605 with his own blessed hands was the one who had repositioned the Hajri Aswad into that position that we find today. So it is on the eastern cornerstone of the uh, Kaaba, the Kuboro building. And the significance is that is the- Is it quite distinct? It, it, it now has a, a sort of a silver framework around it. You can't miss it. You, you, you can't miss it, no, but- I, I've not been fortunate enough to visit- uh, But over, over the I years, like. because of the erosion on the stone, mm. the stone is now sunk backwards quite a, quite a lot. Um, I have a feeling that there is now a glass cover in it, but I, I'm not quite sure on that. But yes, it is distinct be because of the framework that is there. And the actual circuits of the Kaaba start from that point okay. and then they go around the Kaaba and complete it at, at the Hajri Aswad as, as, as such. As far as worshipping it, it has never been worshipped. From the time of Hazrat Adam salam to the time of the present day Muslim, the stone actually is not worshipped as such. However, we hold it in reverence <coughs> for the one reason that it was the Prophet of Allah who had placed it in that position. And according to Hazrat Umar, when he performed the Ahaj rites, he actually kissed the stone and he said at that time, that you are just a mere stone, that you cannot do any good or harm to anyone. But because I saw the Prophet of God do this, the kiss the uh, stone, that is why I am doing the same in order to seek blessings from, from that act. Um, there is another Hadith, which I think re re relates to the black stone. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ said that this was in fact a white stone, but the sins of man have made it into a black stone. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that it may mean that a meteorite coming into the atmosphere of the earth because of the, uh, the, the uh, burning and so on mm -hmm. had been turned into black, and that relates to what the Hajri Aswad is at, at this time. So that is the mm -hmm. history of the Hajri Aswad. It does predate Islam by many uh, thousands many of years. Things and therefore it has no significance as far as worship is concerned, but we have reverence for it because of the Holy Prophet's connection with it at that yeah. time. Yes. And Jazakumana, Dr. Sahib. And just linked to that, the, the issue I raised about paganism, again, in its history, because we read at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that he removed idols, because it, it was nevertheless a place of worship for different people of different beliefs. Yes. And, and you know, at that time, they're, they're in its history, so it's never been sort of a symbol just for paganism or a link there. And but some, see, some they, historians try and make that link. But they do make the link and they have a right to make mm -hmm. that link. But, but the thing is, it doesn't mean, as Dr. Sabah said, that it was worshipped as such in, the, in its original uh, you know, form. Mm -hmm. The way it was used, etc. the reason it was used was because it was something which had been sent down from the heavens to build the, this first house for mankind. And this is the important thing. Here, it's of course a house of God, but in the Qur'an it's called the first house built for mankind. It doesn't even say it was built for God. Mm -hmm. It means that all mankind have a claim on it. Now, what they do with that building, of course, can vary according to who is in charge of the house, but 
this, but the fact remains that it was originally built for the worship of the one true God. Later on, pagans took over that place and turned it into a house of idols, which detracts from the one true God. And so it was restored to its uh, you know, primary function of that house for all mankind. But it's, it means that it's available, available to all. All can and should be able to visit it as long as they don't bring practices which could you know, uh, be detrimental to its uh, sanctity and to its holiness as a place of worship for the, for the one true God. Otherwise it belongs to, to, to everyone. But this tendency of wanting to relate one thing to the other, that this must have come from here, this must have come from there. Oh, the Muslims have the, the moon as a symbol, so therefore their god is a moon god. Mm -hmm. So they always make these links, where they see links where there aren't any, and they say, well, actually your god doesn't exist, it's just a moon god you've rehashed, mm -hmm. you know. And so this stone as well was just a pagan artifact, and now you've rehashed it and made it into something monotheistic, just to, just to belittle the thing. Whereas they forget that it's in human nature mm. to give a lot of attribute, a lot of value to things which were attached to famous people of the past. For example, if there's a chair going on auction and it's said in one of these the great auction houses here in London, let's say, that it belonged to uh, you know, Henry VIII, immediately, it might be a very, very simple chair, immediately a, an enormous price will be set upon it and people will be fighting and it'll probably sell for millions of pounds. Mm -hmm. It's just a chair, it's just made of a few pieces of wood. But because he used it, it, it acquires a significance. Mm -hmm. And this is human nature. So because this was the, the, the thing which is the, has the most importance attached to it, it was used by Adam, mm. it was used again by Abraham, mm. and it was set into the, uh, its place again by the greatest of all prophets, Muhammad Sallallahu So because of that, we, of course, please forgive us if we are showing reverence to this thing. Because it's, it's, a, it's something which marks the presence of all these people and our love for all these people. But that's all it is, as Dr. Abbas says, we certainly do not worship it. And if there is anybody out there who's worshipping it, it's a very deluded person. We only worship Allah, and we, we give, but we do give respect, we show respect to things which mark the presence and love of the, of the, the great people of the past. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, very extensive detailed answer, um, but I'm sure Saad will have no uh, qualms now to say that uh, it's a, the completeness of the answer does sort of take care of all the other additional questions he had as well. Zakamullah Saad Saab also for your question. Linked to this, if I could stay with the theme of um, the um, Kaaba and the places you know the, where Muslims turn to, of course I referred to the uh, Hajj, uh, as both of you did as well in the response to the previous questions. Um, Rahan Ahmed Sahib, Assalamualaikum from Canada, Dr. Saab's asking uh, various questions <coughs> about Hajj. The first of these is, and perhaps you could take the first two questions together, first is what are the conditions under which someone should perform Hajj? Whilst it's a prerequisite, it's a requirement for Muslims, if at all possible, they should perform it in their lifetime. What are the key conditions and the distinction we can draw between Hajj and Umrah? Mm -hmm. Well, pilgrimage Hajj is one of the pillars of Islam, and therefore it's one of the founding pillars of Islam, but there are conditions that are attached to it. Some of the other pillars of Islam, uh, like paying the zakat and fasting in the month of Ramadan, also have certain conditions that are put there, and if you fulfill those conditions, then that becomes an obligation upon every Muslim. 
As far as the Hajj is concerned, it is an obligation to uh, perform the pilgrimage to the House of Allah once in their lifetime if conditions can be fulfilled. And the conditions are such that, for instance, you must be physically fit to go and perform the Hajj. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, any ailment or disability which will not allow you to perform the Hajj and to come back to your residence, then that is an obligation that is not to be met by you. Then there is a financial financial condition as well, that you cannot borrow money mm. to go and perform the Hajj from someone. You must be financially stable to be able to go and perform the Hajj and to return to your place of residence without having the burden burden placed, placed upon you. Uh, women, for instance, have a condition that they cannot go to Hajj along, or on their own. They have to have a mahram, they have to have a male escort that will be part of their families with whom they have to perform the Hajj. If they do not find that they are in a uh, situation to be able to do that, then that is not obligatory upon them to, to perform Hajj. You must be free. Uh, you must not be, uh, for instance, slaves did not have an obligation to perform Hajj. Uh, you must be sane. So these are certain conditions that have to be certainly met. And the most important is that there has to be safety for your passage to Mecca to perform the Hajj there, to perform all the rites, and then also you must have safety to return back to where you're resident. If your life is under any type of danger along the journey there in Mecca and while, while the performance or on your way back, then you certainly do not fulfill the condition for Hajj and therefore it is not an obligation for you to perform the Hajj if, if it is not safe for you. The Umrah is considered as a lesser Hajj. That is something that can be, um, Hajj can only be performed mm. on, during the month of Dhul Hajj, in the, in the specified days of Dhul Hajj. Whereas an Umrah can be performed outside of those days. And some of the rites of pilgrimage of Hajj and Umrah mm. do differ slightly. Uh, there are certain uh, slight differences. But th that is the main difference is the timing of Hajj and Umrah is definitely different in, in that respect. In Umrah, actually, there are only four things which you do. One is you go into the state of Ihram, mm -hmm. which is where you put the pilgrim's garb on and you, you shed you know, your normal clothes. And the second one is you do the tawaf, the circumambulation around the Kaaba. So that's in common with, with the Hajj. Mm -hmm. The third one is you do the Sa'i, which is the running between the two hillocks of uh, Safa, uh, Safa and Marwa. And the last one is the either shaving the head or clipping of the hair. Uh, that's the, these are the only things we should do. So you don't go, for example, to Arafat, you don't go to Mina, you don't go to Muzdalifah, and you don't give any sacrifice either. You don't sacrifice an animal in the Umrah. So the, there are these, as Dr. said, there are these differences you know, in, uh, in the practice. So the Umrah is, much, is a much lighter thing. It's a much easier thing to do. The Hajj is much more, you know, it's got many more things to, to fulfill. But there's one thing which I wanted to, to add on to what Dr. Saab said, absolutely correct. But there's one thing which, which uh, that, that is as far as the, the practice of it goes. You have to fulfill these conditions to be able to actually even do the Hajj physically. But there's a very m much more important thing which is having your Hajj accepted. Now, there is a condition to have your Hajj accepted which is very basic and it might sound easy but it's actually very difficult. So it doesn't mean that because we've done Hajj, or some people they say, mashallah, I've done Hajj 10 times over. I actually know somebody who's done 10 Hajjs. He's probably done 12 or 13 by now. Um, 
But it doesn't necessarily follow on from there that your Hajj has been accepted. And we have this very famous uh, story, don't we, of that um, saintly person who one year received a revelation from God. And God told him that, you know what, this year, or it was angels I think who appeared to him and said that this year nobody's Hajj has been accepted at all. All those thousands of people who went to do Hajj, not one of them had their Hajj accepted. Out of them, of course, there would be the, all the able-bodied ones and the ones who had the means to go. Mm. The, they had right of passage, you know, they, they, they were in good health, etc., etc. There were all these things, yet their Hajj was rejected. Except for one person, and he didn't even go for the Hajj. But his Hajj was accepted. So he said, who's that person? They said, it's a man called so-and-so, and he lives in this place in Baghdad. So he set out to find out what that person might have done to have had his Hajj accepted without even going for the Hajj. Mm. And when he went there, it, he did in effect find the person at that place as he'd seen in, the, in the, the, that vision or revelation he'd received. And he asked him, he said, I've come such a long way because I was told by God that your Hajj was accepted whereas you didn't go for Hajj. He said, that is correct, I did not go for Hajj. And I'm very pleased to, to know that my Hajj was accepted. He said, so what did you do then? He said, well, the only thing I can think of is that, you know, for, for a very long time I've been really, really desiring to go to Hajj, but I didn't have the means. So I was saving over the years towards the Hajj. And finally, this year I'd arrived at an, at an amount which was sufficient to cover my expenses. He said, but just before setting off, I smelt this most delicious aroma of meat cooking at my neighbours. So I couldn't resist it, so I went to his door, and obviously they must have been very you know, friendly to each other, because he was very forward, and he said that I come to stake my claim as a neighbor on a portion of this meat because it smells so nice. And his neighbor said, I'm very sorry, but you will not have any of it. And he said, how? I'm your neighbor, how can you say this to me? He said, because it's halal for, for us, but it's haram for you. He said, aren't you a Muslim like me? So how can you say that? And he said, he repeated it, he said, it's halal for us. I'm telling you, it's, not, it's haram for you. Mm. So he said, so why? So after a while, he relented and said, look, he said, we have been starving for so many days. And I was walking in the streets and I came across this donkey that had recently died. And I cut out a piece of it to bring home to my family. And that's what we're eating. So it's halal for us, but it's haram for you. So he said, I was so shocked when I heard that, that here I am going for Hajj and my neighbor is dying of hunger, that I went and collected all the money I had for the Hajj and gave it to him. And so that was how his Hajj was accepted, whereas he hadn't even gone for the Hajj. So this shows that if one wants one's, uh, one's worship in general, not even, not only the Hajj, the Hajj is like the, the apex of all you know, worship, to be accepted by God, one has to be kind to God's creatures. One has to look after them as we have to, you know, this is our duty. We can't be negligent of our neighbors and then hope that God is going to be kind to us when, because they're all his creatures. So if we're unkind to God's creatures, we cannot have any hope that he's going to be kind to us and accept the things that we do for him. So these things have to go together. So this is the spirit of the Hajj, which unfortunately eludes people to a large degree. It's very, very unfortunate. Mm. And uh, Dr. Saab as well. A final question from Rahan is also in the context of the founder of the Abdiya Muslim community. As to um, whether, first of all, did he perform Hajj Umrah? And if not, 
the reasons behind that and the basis of what we've just been discussing. Part of that's already, I think, mm -hmm. may have been answered yes. in the conditions. But if we could just sort of cover that one off as Jung Yusuf. Well, the first thing was that the promised Messiah Salam's health was very poorly. Mm -hmm. He suffered from different um, ailments. Mm -hmm. And so even from that, uh, in that respect, he, he, would, he would have been forgiven from the Hajj anyway. He would not be able to mm -hmm. do the Hajj because mm -hmm. of that, because this is Allah's commandment, mm -hmm. that you have to be able-bodied to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. But also he had fatwas on his head, f all the way from India to uh, the, uh, the holy sites in Makkah and Medina, mm -hmm. by the ulama there. So this means that the, the passage for him would have been very, very dangerous. And it wasn't because he feared for his life, therefore, that he wouldn't have gone but because this is Allah's commandment. Mm. Allah tells you if the passage is not clear for you and you are in danger, then you do not, com you do not go for the Hajj. So had he gone anyway and said, I don't fear for my life, he would have been disobeying God. So people try to turn mm. that, twist that the other way around and say, well, actually, he was so fearful for his life that he didn't go. But they're disobeying God in the process, you see. So he was more than excused. Mm. Yeah, we, sh we should not forget that the Holy Prophet ﷺ only performed one Hajj. He was only 200 miles away from Mecca. And don't you think that he wanted to perform the Hajj at every, every opportunity that he had? Of course he did wanted to perform mm -hmm. the Hajj. Wanted to go back to Mecca because that was his birthplace. That was where the Kaaba was. And because of the situation that there was uh, between the Meccans and the Medinites, the Holy Prophet ﷺ, it was not safe for him in all those years to go back and perform the Hajj. And even on one occasion, he prepared his followers to go to Mecca, prepared them for Hajj and take their um, animals with them for sacrifice. But they were not, not permitted to, go for, uh, to enter Mecca for Hajj. So from that, we know that the Prophet also was placed under restrictions of not being able to perform the Hajj. And it was only on one occasion when peace had become Fair, yeah. and that he was able to perform the Hajj at that time. And just as a final sort of aside, Umrah and Hajj, we've talked about the distinction and the lesson. Was Umrah something that came about during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or was it during the Khulafah's time? It's in, in history. It's, it's in the Holy Quran. Uh, mention of it is in the Holy Quran. So it would have been during the time of the Holy Prophet. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, thank you for that. And my thanks also to Rahan for his question. Our next Partly, sort of, we, we've been talking about the spirit of sacrifice. We see Malik Saab, Assalamu alaikum, from the United States, has a question about the Qurbani, uh, the issue of giving sacrifice. And Qurbani is well known uh, during the second Eid, which is uh, celebrated Eid al Azia, um, during which there's a sacrifice of animals. And he's asking, is it wajib or is it sunnah? Is it kind of an obligatory, is it compulsory, in other words, to offer? Um, an animal for sacrifice, but when you look around the current world, um, Dr. Saab, you know, you, a lot of people sometimes think, you know, yes, you want to give for charity, and partly the notion behind Qurbani was also that others would benefit from the sacrifice of that animal. Um, surely it's also equally valid to give away money for a needy person or a cause, or a noble cause. These are all good causes. All charitable acts are, are good causes. And the ethos behind the sacrifice of an animal has the same, same uh, ethos behind it, that people will benefit from the meat that is being sacrificed. People who perhaps have not had meat in the whole year, they will at least have meat Much on... Much akin to the 
story that yeah, uh, absolutely much keen to that so that is the ethos behind sacrifice uh, however, charity and sadaqa is something that is, and zakat, some, that is financial contribution that is made by man. And that's obligatory, that element? Or that that element. The, 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 you see, the, the sacrifice of an animal, we can relate that back to the uh, Prophet Abraham salam, and to the Holy Prophet salam. But the hadith, you know, if you look at the hadith, that the, uh, Hazrat Abu Huraira says that the Prophet said, whoever can afford to make a sacrifice of an animal but does not do so, let him not uh, approach our place of prayer. So that you know, brings to mind that this is the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And if we have affordability, if a person is able to afford to sacrifice an animal on these occasions, then this is something that he must do according to that hadith of the Holy Prophet mm -hmm. The Promised Messiah also has uh, mentioned this. Mm -hmm. And in particular, he mentioned it in a, in a very interesting book of his, which was uh, revealed sermon, a sermon which was entirely revealed to him on the day of Eid al-Adha, mm -hmm. which is the Eid which follows this, the, mm -hmm. the Hajj. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to read this out here if I, if I could, because I think it's very important for, for Muslims in particular to hear the reason for, the, for the, the sacrifice being so important. He says, O servants of Allah, on this day, the Eid al-Adha, think deeply and contemplate, for in the ceremony of the sacrifice, there is a hidden secret for people of understanding. As you all know, many animals are sacrificed on this day. Large numbers of camels, bullocks, and many flocks of sheep are slaughtered, and all this in order to seek the pleasure of the Lord of the universe. And this has been the practice since the beginning of Islam until the present day. In my opinion, he says, these sacrifices offered by us in accordance with the Sharia of Islam are beyond count, and they outnumber by far those sacrifices that used to be performed by the communities of the prophets of yore. And a Muslim is he who places his neck for the Lord of all the worlds, worlds and sacrifices the camel of his soul and places his forehead on the ground to be given up as an offering to Allah and is never forgetful of death even for a moment. So you see the symbolism here which is drawing. He says, in short, the slaughtering of sacrificial animals, which is an institution in Islam, th uh, through its sacrifice reminds the soul to be submissive and it serves as an incentive for us to achieve this lofty goal. If done as a sacrifice of one's lower self, it is also a precursor or beginning of the state, which is ultimately attained after completion of the mystic path, which in Arabic is as-suluk. It heralds that state. It is incumbent, wajib, and this is the mm. word he uses here, so it is definitely wajib on the believers, on all believing men and women who are in search of the pleasure of God, the most loving, to understand this truth and to make it their cherished goal and to impress it so deeply in their hearts that every atom of their being may be permeated with it. This is the station where the journey of the Salikin, the mystics, comes to an end, and the goal of the Arifin, the Gnostics, reaches its ultimate zenith. And it is here that all ranks of purified souls find completion, and all the stages of the righteous and elect are fulfilled, and the journey of the Oliya, the saints, is completed. So this is taken from the Khutbah al-Hamiyah. So this brings to uh, the four, the, mm. the, the great significance of the mm. sacrifice, mm -hmm. when we're doing it, it's, it's a symbol for what we're doing to ourselves. Mm. So, as Allah says that neither their flesh nor their blood reaches Allah, but it's your taqwa that reaches Allah, it's your fear of Him. So we should always remember that. It's the same when we, for when we uh, do the sacrifice for our, the, on the, upon the birth of our children, the aqiqah. 
So we're sacrificing for a boy or for a girl, meaning that this child now is being offered to God. He will be giving his entire life to the service of God. It's his flesh for it's it's flesh for his flesh, and it's hair for his hair, etc., etc. So we say all these words as with a symbolic meaning that we are actually sacrificing ourselves for God. Whatever you know, we we, we may be called upon to do, we are ready for that. So it's with this spirit that people have to do it, and not just go and grab animals and you know slit their throats yeah. and. It becomes a very mundane thing when you don't actually think about all these Why things. Why you're doing it. And yes. I think the symbolic nature, it's interesting when you talked about the Hajj as well. Uh, as Dr. Zaitsab pointed out, that the Holy Prophet of Islam only performed Hajj himself once. That it's, it's the symbolism which is attached to the cause as well. And some people, as you rightly said, slaughter hundreds of animals, but perhaps their own lives are far from reflective of the noble intent and symbolism Indeed. behind this. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, thank you very much for that. My thanks also to Faseem Malik Sahib for his question. Um, we're going to travel sort of down under all the way to New Zealand for our next question, which comes from Ahmed Khan Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Ahmed Sahib. Um, Dr. Saab, he's talking and elaborate wishes for you to elaborate on the people of Hood, on this historic generation as he calls it, for our awareness. These people who were giants that were created and then destroyed. And it's also reflecting a question we've got from um, Usman Mahmoud Saab from the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Usman Saab, who also has, uh, in conversations, been talking about this very um, uh, issue. And also, perhaps, Usman Saab is also asking, what's the Quranic explanation on the particular verses which are quoted? Well, you see, <clears throat> the Prophet Hood was a prophet that was sent to the people of Ard. Um, and when we look at the genealogy of the Prophet Hud, salam, he was uh, uh, one of the progenitors of, uh, he was an, uh, one of the people who followed Prophet Noah, salam, okay. um, three, three generations down. And uh, they, it, it takes place in a city in Hadramut near Yemen, in present, present day Yemen. And they were very skillful people, uh, and they would build lofty palaces and lofty buildings of nature. So you know, sometimes when we refer to people and we say he's a giant of a man, it's a colloquialism, meaning the that a stature of those people, and even present day we can mm. talk of those. So when they're building these lofty structures, mm. we consider them to be giants of men in, in that sense. So the prophet Hud was sent to these people, who obviously, like all prophets, met with the opposition and rejection and they rejected him and the prophet kept warning them of the punishment of God and they kept rejecting him and thinking that they had built these lofty palaces in paradise and they were the most uh, strong people around that they could never be destroyed but obviously that is not what happened that is not what happened they were destroyed by a furious wind which actually uplifted and uprooted everything and they were totally destroyed in that respect mm -hmm. so these this this is what is meant uh, as far as that is concerned i think in New Zealand, you have the Maoris as well, don't you? Indeed. So in, in some stature, they, they can be considered as being larger in structure and, and stature than most other people are. So we have around the world some people who are physically also uh, larger than the norm, um, but because of their skillful uh, characteristics and their ability to build great structures, they are considered as giants of people.
Zakamana, Dr. Saab, and my thanks also to Ahmed Saab for that question. Um, Usman Saab, one of his questions has been answered, Jahangir Saab, but his second question relates to the concept of jinn, and he's been having various discussions with other friends of his, and some other Muslims, not the Amdi Muslims, they actually do believe that jinn has a role to play, and they also go to the extent that jinn can enter the soul of a person, and we've seen these kind of at its extreme end, you know, these uh, uh, people who try and beat the uh, jinn out of individuals and uh, in terms of a physical act as well, yes. which is quite appalling. But in England, they try to beat the living daylights out of people, <laughs> but in, in Muslim countries, Again, they try that, to beat the jinns out, jinn out, out of that. But perhaps there's a symbolism there rather than a literal, unfortunately, that some well, people it's practice. Very unfortunate, yeah. isn't it? Mm. But it's big business, though. Mm. That we have to admit. The jinn are helping some people because they're lining their pockets very, very, not very thickly. The problem is that the, the, this concept of jinn as being some kind of a uh, kind of a spiritual entity, you know, a creature apart from human beings that can actually possess human beings, etc. And be exercised. Yeah, this is a, a belief which transcends many cultures, mm. not all cultures, but many of them believe in this, um, in different forms, they give them different names. Mm. We, know, we all know about the, this belief in the Catholic Church, for example, we've all been exposed to that on Hollywood, etc. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that the cases where we see people speaking in foreign, foreign languages suddenly, or where we see um, people speaking in funny and weird voices, these can all be explained by, you know, psychosomatic disorders or, you know, mental disorders, etc. And we don't have to go into the, the arena of possession to be able to explain them. And also it's quite uh, bizarre, isn't it, that jinns only possess people who actually believe in them. Mm -hmm. So why is it that atheists, for example, are never possessed by jinns, we, we, we might ask? Mm. Um, are they selective in, you know, who they, po they possess, etc.? So there are many questions which can be raised here. But the fact of the matter is that in the in the uh, in Quranic Arabic, jinn only means the hidden ones. Mm -hmm. So if you could actually retranslate the Quran and replace the word jinn by the hidden ones, mm -hmm. suddenly it would start making a whole load more sense. And sometimes I wonder why we don't do that because it it might you know make the picture a little bit clearer for many people. But it could be any kind of living entity which is hidden. Mm -hmm. And we've said it many times, the jinn can be bacteria, they could be viruses, they could be people living in uh, mountainous areas who are rarely seen by others and so therefore they're hidden. It could be leaders who are working behind the scenes, you rarely see them, so they're also hidden. And so these are all called jinn. And to say that there are jinn that can enter your body and then you need a special you know, uh, uh, exorcist to get them out of you, etc., th these things are just superstition. But because people are very superstitious, even now in the 21st century, unfortunately, and mm. even some very educated, educated people, people which mm. is really shocking to me, mm. uh, how they can fall for these things. And when they see people, you know, like going into trances and things like that, the first thing they'll think of is not to take them to hospital, but it's to go and find the local gin expert, mm. you know, which is really, really strange. But that's what's going on these days, unfortunately. It's very yeah. lucrative business, though. <laughs> And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.